Welcome to the Days of Favour Teaching Day podcast from Kingdom Faith Yorkshire. Uh, as Claire and I were praying about this, I think it was in August sometime, um, we felt that this was something that we, we were to do this, this year. And um, this was the theme that God gave us. Developing prophetic people, developing, sorry, being a prophetic people, developing missional imagination. Which in one way is like one of those huge mouthfuls of what does it mean. And another, by the end of it, I hope you're going to have a very clear idea of exactly what it means. Because it's actually something that I believe God is very much doing with us right now uh, in this season. He has been doing it with us. He has been developing this in us, even if we didn't know these words. Um, And he's going to continue to release us in this way, to be uh, missional, to use... Uh, missional imagination, prophetic imagination. And it is what it says there in the white writing and it said on the posters, an invitation to explore with us what it looks like to be a missional community that is prophetic in the way we see, hear, act and live every day. This is probably going to be the most didactic, the most teaching of all, this, all the ones today. When, uh, late, as we go through the day, there's going to be more where we involve everybody uh, so that you're engaging in what we're talking about and in that sense, we are exploring what it looks. Because it's no good somebody just giving you loads of information and then going away thinking, what a great load of information. If this is from God, and I believe it is, then it's something we want to be taking on board and it framing the way we think and framing the way we talk. And most importantly, framing the way we're behaving in the community. So that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, it's very much intentionally also been part of Days of Favour because a lot of this has got to be rooted in prayer probably the most important thing about what we do as we move ahead. Scarborough has got lots of needs. The important thing is to do what God has given us to do because the need is beyond us and he has specific purpose for us as individuals to be involved in within it. So it's very intentionally part of Days of Favour and here's the Days of Favour scripture. I tell you now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. So we're looking and uh, walking in that favor, walking in that grace. Amen, amen. Uh, another way of looking at it, another way of translating the word that's used for favor, charis, is to say walking in God's pleasure. So we're walking in God's pleasure. In other words, we're doing what God wants us to do. And I think what we'll see, I hope what we'll see today uh, and throughout the day, is it's not so much we go out and take God with us into the nasty old world, but we go and join with what God is already doing out there. God is a missional God. Ever since the beginning of time, he has come to be with humankind. He came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve uh, went against him, he looked after them. He, didn't re- he made them clothes before he sent them out into that world. He, he, even, in, even in the judgment, if you like, of that, he was loving them and making the way open. The angel in the, on, the, on the door to the Garden of Eden wasn't because to punish them, it was to protect them from the damage and the hurt that they would incur if they walked back in there and drank from the tree of life and become eternally separated from God. God didn't want us to be eternally. So God's mission has always been sending. He sent, uh, he sent various prophets like Moses and Isaiah and ultimately he sent himself as Jesus. 
So God is always ascending God. God is always coming and looking and walking around and meeting with people. And I think the church nationally and internationally is waking up to the fact that being a uh, mission isn't just going on mission and doing something. It's about how we live. It's about joining with what God is doing where we are uh, and where we go. Uh, with the great commission scripture, you've got go and make disciples. And very often the emphasis has been on the word go, which is good because the world at times has needed to wake up and send people into other nations and not remain comfortable in what they're doing, and that remains true. But uh, in the Greek, the emphasis is on the make. So it really, if you, if you translated the, the, the thought rather than the exact word, it would be, as you go, make disciples. As you live your life, as you go about what you do, you are to be making disciples. It's not a special activity. It's something that God has given us all to do. Because he, he adds to those disciples, doesn't he? And teaching them everything I have commanded you. And he's just told them this. So therefore, this bit is included. To go making disciples in all uh, nations. So this little scripture comes from, uh, let's just read a, a little bit wider. As God's fellow workers, or God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I help you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Maybe you're thinking, well, why does that necessarily apply today? Because it's applied to any time where people have said, I believe it. Since Jesus, we've been living in this time. But you only live in it if you accept it, if you put it on, as we were talking one other morning of putting on. Um, but the first bit of that, walking in this favour, walking in days of salvation, God's fellow workers, God's co-workers, what, what, an, what, an, what an sort of incredible honour that God would, would, would call us that. But you can see he's not expecting us to go out from a place where he is into a place where he isn't to take him with us. He's already there. That was a, very much a missionary mindset that you went to a God-forsaken country because you needed to take God with you to proclaim the name of Jesus. And the motivation's good. The motivation's awesome. But actually, God was already there. They went to join his call to be there and come and join in what he was doing. And that hasn't changed. Wherever you go, you'll find God is there. You can't go anywhere high enough or low enough or wide enough or deep enough and discover God's missing. And, oh, that's great, because he's come with me. He was already there. Yeah? So, that's days of favour, uh, and then we've got this title that we briefly just mentioned, Being a Prophetic People, Developing Missional Imagination. And uh, behind all of what we do today, uh, some of it, uh, it is a teaching day, so it's not a preaching day, though that I always venture into preaching, it's just how I do it. But in everything that we look, I want you to remember this one scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 5.14. Just the first bit of it will do. For Christ's love compels us. That was Paul's great theme. This is as he launches into the whole teaching of being a new creation and leading up to even this part we just looked at about being in the day of favour and the day of salvation. The thing is, it's Christ's love that compels us. 
If it's anything else, there's going to be an emptiness and there's going to be uh, a tiredness and a draining that's, that's not of God. It's, it's allowing the love of God to, com- to compel us to action. Not even a sense of, oh, I ought to do that. It's actually, you just get so filled with God's love and being in God's love and, being, and trusting in his love that you want to see others impacted without that. So in everything we do today, even if we talk technical words or anything like that, remember the simplicity of it. It's Christ's love that compels us to make this gospel known, to make this, to shine this light in our community, to preach the gospel through good works, to preach the gospel through good words. So I want you to look at this picture. It's quite a... um, a well-known picture, and what do you see? Yeah, it's 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 a common common optical illusion, isn't it? But often you f- you first notice the columns or the spindles, or maybe it's a staircase rail or something like that. That's the white bits. Uh, but then, if you note, if you keep looking at it, you might notice the the people, which are the black ones, actually. Two people facing each other, talking to each other. Some of you might say, I can't see that. And that's quite common too. But here's a person, and here's a person. It's a whole person, and they're looking at each other, and their heads are at the top. Maybe that'll help if you haven't seen it yet. So, which is true? This is a picture of spindles, or is it true that this is a picture of people? (laughs) Yeah, but both are completely contradictory. It's actually both. If you say one, you're actually only accessing part of the truth. And often, in script, often scripture is like this. Take free will and destination. Is it all about free will? Yes. Is it all about predestination? Yes. They're completely contradictory, but we don't see necessarily the full picture. And what we want to do this morning is look at the, these concepts and perhaps enable us to see what God is doing in a different way or reinforce or support what we already see. Okay, so today you might see them people talking in scripture that you've never seen before. They were always there. They were always the truth. Uh, but you've only, you've, you've perhaps just saw the spindles truth. Okay, or maybe the whole picture is so familiar to you, it'll just be, yeah, I've seen that before. That's amusing. <laughs> Hallelujah. So that's what we're going to do. And this uh, is three ways to see the same thing here, really. Um, the first one. It's something that I hope, if you're part of Kingdom Faith Yorkshire, is something that you know very well. Uh, it's a very short phrase, dare to dream. Um, it's kind of our, it's not kind of, it is our cultural vision. It's what is fundamental to our culture. That idea that we should dare to dream. But what does it mean? I mean, you've probably heard me talk, if you've been around here, on dare to dream before. So let's look at it slightly differently today. But what does it mean, this dare to dream? There was a, an interesting quote or something on, I was watching something on television and they just, it was just dropped in and it just said, only those who dream change things. I thought, well, yeah, that's interesting. It's because when you dream, it's not daydreaming, it's not just wandering off and having a you know, nice 15 minutes just in soft, warm fuzzies. Dare to dream is about dreaming that you, uh, about what God is doing in our day. 
and you dare to dream it in the sense of it means that something, things will change because God on the move and God being active will change things. Okay, so dare to dream is the first one. The second one, oops, sorry, dare to, the second one is prophetic imagination. Now, in the title, it said missional imagination, and this is prophetic imagination. So we're going to look at what is prophetic imagination, and we're also going to look at what it said in the title, missional imagination. And they're probably, although it's a simplification, three different ways to see the same picture. There was only two in that original optical illusion. I don't know if there is any that could do three. But here we're going to have three ways of looking at it. So we'll go through these three fairly briefly, but really just uh, put the foundation down of the vision of who we are as a people and what God is doing amongst us. Okay? Right, let's get going then. So, we'll go back to Dare to Dream for a minute, since that's the one probably most familiar to you. This is something that God gave us right at the beginning. If you go on the Kingdom Faith website... There's a whole Dare to Dream vision statement, a long one. We dare to dream of a church where the lonely find friendship, etc., etc. There's a list of, of statements. But it's been interesting over the years. It's almost like that expansion of this phrase actually is restri- can restrict the vision rather than expand the vision. Because although that's a list of, uh, of brilliant things, uh, and it is a list of things we dare to dream, it's, um, uh, what can I say, it, it, it actually begins to restrict because if it's just dare to dream, everybody can begin to grasp hold of what God is saying to them rather than the list of, I'm not, we're not going to take the list down by the way, but I think the fr- just this phrase dare to dream was one of those God things that he gave to us that begins to, if you allow it to, open your eyes to what God is doing. It's about having faith. It's about believing that um, God has a plan and that we're part of it. Um, Here's a a quote you probably never heard me use before. Now, only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation who believe it and live by it. You definitely have never heard me say that in this context. You might have heard it, or any four mission student might have heard it. Uh, Newbegin is the name of the person that said it. Newbegin, Leslie Newbegin, was uh, a missionary abroad um, in, in sort of the middle of the last century. Uh, he was a bishop as well, uh, but he was a man who was on fire for Jesus. And uh, it was a, he was abroad for many, many years. Uh, I think it was India. I'm not quite sure now, but I think it was India. And he came back to this country in the 60s. And even in the 60s, it was a shock to him how much the, the, that this nation had moved away from God. Well, you think that was the 1960s. It was, to him, there was a whole new culture that people were living in that when he had left, which I think was the 40s, didn't exist. And he realized that um, something had to change in the church if... If the church was to reverse the decline in the church, something had to change in the mindset of how people thought. Because the church, particularly in the 1960s, was still very much thinking this is a Christian country and if our church is good, people will come. Because people ought to come. 
Um, it's a similar pattern that you, you see in, in America now, because they are moving in exactly the same direction we already have done, where the culture has been very much everybody goes to church, and so churches are focused on making church as good as possible. Because basically the people are going to, in America particularly, drive down the street looking at the different churches, try them out, and finding one that suits them. So you need to be the best possible church, which has tended to revolve around, uh, for Americans, comfy seats, good children's work, excellent worship, good teaching. None of these are bad things, by the way. Uh, uh, so that you are, it's what's called an attractional model. So the thing, your main way of operating as a church is to be a church that will attract people in. And Leslie Newbigin, very prophetically, really, because it wasn't, you know, this wasn't really a strong thing at the time. Many people, at the time he first began talking like this, thought he was off his head. You know, what a ridiculous thing to be thinking, that this country would move away from Christianity. Uh, but he said, what will need to happen is that the, the church itself has a different plan for reaching communities and has a different way. And he was drawing, obviously, on his own experience of being in a completely different culture. So what does this actually mean? It uses that horrendously long word, hermeneutic. Um, it's, a, it's a Greek word, and uh, it comes for, it's used, it isn't just used about the Bible, actually. You can use it about anything, but it's mostly used for the Bible, and you'll see why. Um, it actually comes from the Greek, so Hermes is, the, is the, uh, the Greek god's messenger, believe it or not, Hermes. And the Greek gods wanted to communicate, this is terrible really, isn't it? You think, this is how we understand the Bible, by Greek gods, but that's Greeks for you. So the, 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 you had the Greek gods wanting to communicate with the mortals, you know, and they were up on Mount Olympus trying to communicate with the mortals. And generally when they communicated directly, it was disastrous, people died. So... They came up with this rather uh, helpful initiative uh, uh, that they would have a winged messenger called Hermes, which is why you also get that postal service with the same name, the, the messengers. Uh, the, the Roman name is Mercury, which is why we call it the planet, and it's called that because it goes around the fast, fast around the sun. So Hermes was the messenger of the gods, and his job was to bring the word of God, or the word of the gods in their case, to the people. So hermeneutics means bringing God's word to the people. And it's normally thought of in the context of preaching scripture, taking scripture and communicating it to somebody in a way that they understand. For example, baptism by immersion, pouring water over somebody as it's commonly done. There's a tribe in Africa, quite a large grouping of people, where when a woman is cursed, to demonstrate that curse, you pour water over her. So if you immediately start talking about baptism in a way of pouring water over people, you're telling them they're going to be cursed. To you, that sounds like nonsense, because that's not in your mindset. You see? So you're, if you're preaching hermeneutically, you're going to have to find a way to communicate that without just talking about pouring water. Maybe you'll focus more on going into the water. The first people that encountered them, though, their normal method of baptism in Africa was actually to pour water over people. And they were remarkably unsuccessful. And you can see why, until they found out why. 
So, but here, Newbegin kind of uses the word in a new way. He says the only, herm- the only hermeneutic, is interesting, of the gospel is a congregation who believe it and live by it. I think you can probably see what that means now. If we're taking God's word to the people, Newbegin would say, the, in, the, in, in the times that are coming, he was saying, the only way we're going to be able to communicate the gospel is through a people who are living it out amongst the community they're in. <laughs> so, so the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation who, live, who believe it and live by it. I think that's a good one to uh, have written down. All right, let's look at what would that possibly be if we then looked at it from uh, taking a word from Scripture. Maybe you feel a bit uneasy about taking a word from a theologian. Here we go. That's exactly the same meaning. In simpler words than hermeneutic. For we walk by faith, not by sight. If you look at the context of where Paul writes this, because we we quote it a lot, I quote it a lot, the uh, New Living actually says, for we live by faith, not by sight, and it's a perfectly valid translation. Paul is describing going through horrendous circumstances in this context. I mean, here here he writes in uh, in another place, I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, It's just a little bit, I've got to add it on the end. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. I wonder how many times we quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It was kind of you to share in my distress. You know, when he's writing to the Philippians there, and also when he's writing to the Corinthians, Paul, in these times, he's not actually having an easy time of it. But even in that, he's saying, so what we see in front of us, and he uses it in two ways here, but let's start with perhaps the way you would normally think, what we see in front of us is not the truth and the reality. We have to look to God by faith so that we can walk this life of faith on this earth, that we can be a hermeneutic of the gospel, living out what we believe in the people around us. For we walk by faith, not by sight. If you look it up in Corinthians, he's also been talking about the heavenly places. And he's saying we don't actually see heaven. We can have glimpses of it in visions. We can have impressions of it in worship. But it's unusual to have a continuous revelation of the glory of heaven. It's not something you see. You can only take hold of it by faith. So we walk by faith, not by sight. Very often the sight does not match up what you see. If you look out there, if you'd probably if you look in your own life or the life of your family, you'll see stuff that does not match up with God's word. And you have a choice. Shall I walk in God's truth and God's promises and expect those to change? Or do I accept this situation? As Paul says, thank you for thinking of me in my distress. We're going to have distress. Jesus said, you will suffer. And I think the church has been weaker for forgetting that bit and just concentrating on the other good things, which we are concentrating on too, these things. 
These are all part of the reality. But sometimes there's a walking into these things, a taking hold of these things, a changing. Whenever you do something, whenever you do something good, whenever somebody stands up and changes, perhaps just the way society works, it takes time. Look how long it took Wilberforce to bring social justice for slaves in the British Empire. Decades. And he could have given up at any point because it, it, it looked impossible most of that time. Abraham had the promise that there would be this child. And without that child, it was impossible for God's covenant to carry on as God had promised. When he got the promise, he was, him and his wife were too old really for children anyway. And then it took another 25 years of waiting. And all know, we all know, sadly, halfway through, or at some point on the way through, slightly more than halfway, they try and come up with their own solution to make God's promises work. And that always brings trouble. Nobody likes waiting, really, especially in this day and age, when you can have an answer immediately through Google. You can even order something and have it in your house the next day, probably, from Amazon. You know, nobody likes waiting. Oh, I need to contact so-and-so. You take your phone out your pocket, and probably within a less than a minute, you're in touch with somebody who could be anywhere in the world, possibly. And you're frustrated if they don't answer. <laughs> you know, we, it wasn't that long ago when to contact somebody else in another place could take a long time. Did you know, in 1976, on Blue Peter... Um, Peter Purvis, do you remember him? <laughs> and John Noakes, yeah, you remember him. And oh, what was the lady? No, it wasn't. Le- it wasn't Valerie. It was the one that came after her, Leslie. Okay, yeah, they 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 did a they did a show in which Peter Purvis walks in in his flares <laughs> and his in his big seventies t-shirt, and he's got this. Huge, it looks like he's got some kind of handbag really uh, on his shoulder here, and he's got like this uh, handset which is about this big. And they, they present that this guy has invented a phone that you don't need to plug in. <laughs> and, and, and of course, there's this, this air of astonishment that, that uh, they could see a time when this would be very useful, just and but probably it would only be used by important people like doctors. And <laughs> but it's quite funny at the end. They say perhaps there will come a time when every, when when these important people walk around with phones that enable them to call others from anywhere. And when, but even when they say call others, they're thinking of calling people on their landline because they've got a typical landline there. And uh, it has to be within seven miles of this huge box, transmission box as well. So it's a, li- it's a little limited, but uh, it's interesting. 1976, they can see. Or they've got an idea that there will come a time when there's instant communication. But before that, it was ringing somebody up and they might not be in. 
And in those days, you probably didn't even have an answer machine, so you'd have to try again and again. And maybe you'd end up sending a letter because that was more reliable. You'd definitely get them at some point, you know. But we live in this instant world, which can make it very difficult for us just to rest in God's promises. When God hasn't answered a prayer within an hour, we're in shock. But we're the only generation that thinks like that. That there's been. Everybody has lived in a slow world compared to how we live. And it's not that God is slow, his timing is perfect. So, we walk by faith, not by sight. This dare to dream is daring to dream of what God can do through us as a community and through us as individuals and then beginning to see that happen. But it's not necessarily it will happen in the next five minutes. Although certainly healings and miracles can. Okay. Let's look at this one. Prophetic imagination. Just for a minute, just stop for a minute and think, how do you feel about the word imagination being used in relation to faith? Because some people have a bit of a reaction to the idea of using your imagination. It's a bad thing. What is imagination? Well, sorry? Yeah, go on then. Absolutely, yeah. Can do. Imagination is part of who we are. So we know it's not like something that the devil has invented for us. It's something that God has given. And like everything God has given, we can use it for good or evil. Or neutral, I suppose. For good or evil. We can use it for the things of God or not the things of God. What prophetic imagination comes from? Well, it comes from the original user of this phrase was a guy called Walter Brueggemann. That's why I put him up there. And that's kind of a quote I found in a book he wrote in 2012. Um, Although all his writings are older than that. um, Where he's talking about what is prophetic imagination. To imagine the world as though Yahweh were a real character and effective agent in the world. And even when you read that, you might think, but he is. But that's not Walter Brueggemann, it's not what he's talking about. He's not saying he might be. He's just trying to say, start to picture what it looks like in your mind when God is walking in this world. When Yahweh is walking the streets of Scarborough, what would it look like? Which is why it links into then, what do you see God doing? So to launch people into the prophetic imagination, Brueggemann is a he's a Old Testament scholar. He's a theologian of the Old Testament, very well renowned in the world. He's in his nineties, I think now. But he 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 demonstrates in the way he teaches that God in the Old Testament, in the way he works with his people, is about bringing freedom to those people when. Moses took the people out of Egypt. God was setting up a community that was centered on freedom, on covenant, on justice and compassion. The the laws that God gave him were revolutionary in that time. 
And one of the reasons they were revolutionary was they applied to everyone. There wasn't an elite class to which they didn't really apply. There were no kings in God's plan, earthly kings, because he would be their ruler, he would be their king. The only reason Israel ever had a king was because they demanded one. They wanted to be more like the world around them. They didn't want to be different. And God relents and says, okay, you can have that. Well, that was both good and bad, as you know. But the one thing that really changed when they had a king was they had a government of power that dictated the way things would happen. And the power all rested in one person. They were a privileged person or one family and the extended people around them. So Brueggemann was, is really strong on that God wants people to live in communities that live under his leadership rather than lots of power concentrated. So you've got this you know, sort of pyramid of leadership with the king at the top and then the people underneath. God's community was one of justice, uh, more of equaling out of those things, if you like. So the prophetic imagination is about seeing God, who he is, what the kingdom is like, and imagining seeing the effect of God's kingdom, as in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. God's rule in your own life, the life of the church, and really importantly, the life of the community. So just stop for a minute. And I want you to just begin to imagine what could Scarborough look like when God is completely in control? Well, what would Scarborough look like if... I know God is in control, but we have plenty of corrupt people interfering in that, if you like. If you can imagine the perfection of the kingdom in this town, what would it look like? Hmm. Hopefully, as you're thinking around this room, there's lots of different thoughts. Just to change it slightly now, you've, you've kind of been hopefully thinking about what perfection is, what it would look like. Now think about how Scarborough actually is. What do you see, even this year, this day, what do you currently see God doing in Scarborough? God is good. Wherever there is good, God is at work. The biggest example of seeing God at work in the community, or the easiest one to relate to perhaps, is the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus repeatedly referred to himself as the I Am. He was God. He wasn't a little bit of God. He was God. To fully understand the Trinity, I think, is a mystery beyond our humanity. We can grasp at it. We can have different concepts of it. We can use examples like a human being is, I'm a father, I'm a son, I'm a husband. All of those things are true, and they, but I'm only one person. But those three things 
are quite different. But I'm only one person. Uh, but you're talking about how I relate to other people. There is a relationship in those labels. A husband is different to a son, is different to a father, and yet it's one person. And with God the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's a, you can look at that and see that that's different ways of God relating to people. But still, they're not separate. Although they're three persons, there's only one God. And... When Jesus came, it wasn't a little bit of God came down to earth. God came. Which is why he said, I am. And yet he could still pray to God the Father. Because the Trinity is still, the fullness of God is, is in the relationship of the actual Trinity to one another. It's a constantly changing, moving relationship from one to the other. The Father relates to the Son, relates to the Spirit. The Father sent the Son. He is ascending God. But what you can see in Jesus is what's called the incarnation. It means God fully present, if you like, in human form here on the earth. It's God being, if you want to change the way you use the word, it's God being incarnational. It's him showing as much of himself as can possibly be shown in human form. But it was what that first sentence is. At that point, it was very definitely Yahweh walking the streets of the earth. He was a real character and an effective agent in the world. So if you're imagining what does Scarborough look like now when God is in Scarborough, actually you're going to imagine something similar to what it would be like if Jesus was here. But then, of course, the prophetic imagination gets hold of that because it then says, but Jesus is here. Because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. So you are, in a different way, the incarnation of God. People look at you, they see God. So when the Christians live in Scarborough, they become that presence of God. So the prophetic imagination says, what does it look like when God walks our streets? So what does it look like when I walk the streets? When I engage with people? Because the two begin to mesh. The reason it's prophetic imagination is because you're saying, it, being prophetic is about seeing. It's about seeing what God can do and then believing to see that that will happen. That's what being prophetic is. So prophetic imagination is beginning to imagine what it looks like when God is living and active in this town. What does it look like when the churches or the denominations or the congregations of this town are just so on fire and full of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like for life in the summit, when all of us here are the incarnation of Jesus. We're walking around believing to see Jesus active and living. And that begins to then enable us to pray into the things we expect to see. Does this make sense? <laughs> so that's prophetic imagination. I mean, prophetic imagination... Uh, 
I wrote down here, brings hope and wonderment at God's meeting of those who grieve or are hungry, God's bringing of new birth. It's just like you see new life everywhere when God's around. Wherever Jesus went, he brought life. Wherever we go, God wants us to bring life. I mean, Scarborough, I don't know if you know this, but in the, the government statistics, Scarborough is, uh, and one of the sets that the government use is called the indices of multiple deprivation. So you look at different ways people are deprived. So it could be through education, it could be through housing, it could be through job opportunities, it could be through income. And, and that's called being deprived if it's below the current sort of normal levels, or not just below them, but way below them. And so multiple deprivation is the government figures of when they put all of those different deprivation figures together into one indices, one score, one thing. And so when you, you, so you can look up online if you want to, you probably don't want to, the indices of multiple deprivation. And you'll find that uh, this area, this immediate area, and one of the ones next to us, is actually in the bottom 1% of this nation. I mean, it's beautiful. I love Scarborough. You know how I, I, always, I always talk uh, positively everywhere I go. I love living here. But there is also a reality that looking at the lives of ordinary people from a statistical point of view, which doesn't take account of everything, it's in the bottom 1%. And if you move out of those areas, it's still in the bottom 10%. There are some very prosperous and comfortable areas in Scarborough, but generally speaking, it is a town in deprivation. In other words, it's a town that Jesus wants to walk the streets of because he has a particular heart for the people who are deprived. I mean, he has a heart for all people to be saved, but you can see in his ministry, there's always something about, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. We are living amongst the poor of our nation. Perhaps we are the poor of our nation. But we are living right in the center of where Jesus wants to be. These are the streets he wants to walk along. So this, is, this, this prophetic imagination is incredibly relevant. What does it begin to look like in this town? Not just about people getting saved, though very much that, but also what does it look like in terms of justice and compassion and things that are changing the situation people are in. Sometimes Christian mission gets lost in just seeing people saved. How many people follow Jesus? and stayed following him. Twelve at the end, plus a few extras. There was the women, of course, as well. They all left at one point, and Jesus turns to them and said, are you going to? And Peter, I think it is, turns to him and says, we've given everything up, what else have we got? We can only follow you now. So, Jesus didn't just heal people to get them saved. He came to be light in a community and change that community. And of course, when you are that light, when you are that change, when you are genuinely God's love in a community, people begin to listen because they see credibility. Poor, uh, poor Justin Welby, I, I think he spoke brilliantly at the TUC about pointing out some of the uh, disastrous policies that lead to 
people being in deprivation and things like Amazon not paying all their taxes and stuff. Unfortunately for him, it's emerged that the Church of England itself invests in Amazon and, and, and some of the other things. So people are calling him out for being a hypocrite. I mean, I think he's addressing his own church. He's not super-duper demigod in control of everything the Church of England does, despite his title. But you can see how he's being called out. They're saying, what you're preaching doesn't match up with what your church is living. Well, imagine if the church is living something, and then when you speak, people can't do that. So prophetic imagination is really, I suppose, the same as dare to dream. Let's look at the last one, because we're running out of time. Missional imagination. It's very, very similar. These, these three things are like that uh, illusion I showed, first of all. Here's some quotes for some books. The parish. Now, that's not a Church of England parish. It's the area you're based in is what uh, Paul Sparks, the author, is referring to. The parish is a dare to your faith. It calls us to the purpose of the church, living out God's dream and caring for the place we are called. If you uh, want to read a good book that's different, perhaps, to books you normally read, I recommend Sparks, Sorens and Friesen's book. It's called um, The New Parish, Our Neighbourhood Churches Are Transforming Mission, Discipleship and Community. But if you just look up The New Parish, you'll find it. (laughs) It's an academic book. It's going to have a long title. It's a compulsory. They always seem to have a colon in. There's always the short bit of title, then a colon, and a little bit more. I don't know why they all do it. Yeah, The New Parish, you just need to look up, and Paul Sparks, and you'll find it if you're interested in it. Um, And what, what he talks about is even with imagination, even with a prophetic imagination of seeing what God can do and seeing what God can do in the church, it's sometimes the church still ends up completely focused inwards. So they could have an imagination for what God can do. They can see a church full of people, full of the Holy Spirit. That's obviously a good thing. But that's all they see. And of course, if it's a church of people full of the Holy Spirit and the focus is on getting full of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to change anything. Because everybody's going to pick up on that focus. And you want more of the Spirit, more of the Spirit, more of the Spirit. And God brings these great moves of God Wonderful moves of God, where people do get filled with the Spirit. You know, we've had things with people falling, falling over, and we still see people falling over, and all kinds of things happening. But then to, it's like, because that's the focus then, we've got to have more meetings with more people coming, more meetings, seeing people, seeing people falling over. We've got to see more people falling over. And you can even get the perversion of, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit because you haven't fallen over yet, or you haven't run around the room shouting strange things. So you can't, you know, and, and you can see that you've moved away from God's purpose, which is being God's people in a community. It's being a community in the community. It's bringing the gospel. It's bringing the fact that Jesus Christ did die, has rised and sat at the right hand of the Father, to the community, of giving them that hope. But sometimes for people to hear, they've got to see it. Particularly in the world we're now living. We live in a very visual world now. Everybody's got a screen in their pocket, as we were talking about earlier. It's not just the, 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 the BBC uh, Blue Peter phone was just a phone. They didn't even, they, there was no idea that actually it would be a full-on computer in their pocket, that uh, we would go back to the advanced technology of sending words to each other instead of talking. But, <laughs> but also it's full of pictures. 
So people are very, very visual. And they're very, very aware of hypocrisy, which is why, as I say, poor Justin Welby is, was torn apart in the Times yesterday after being mildly torn apart the day before for daring to speak social justice. What else is Christianity going to do but speak to fairness for people? <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> keep, keep to your church, vicar, was kind of the comments. But then, of course, when these other things come out, I mean, the comments on it were was, was savage. But that is a reality of what, of what is happening. So we, we do need to be a people, and we do need to be a people, otherwise we are hypocrites who are living what God has given. So the missional imagination is, is very much about seeing God in the community. So Paul Sparks talked about um, uh, the genius of the parish. Um, we know all of the difficulties of parish and things that the Anglican Church has been through about, with parish, but the, the genius of parish was that there was to be a Christian community of a certain size in every single place in England. I mean, that's a great vision. <laughs> Actually, if you think about it, that is a great vision to have. Okay? And so he takes that concept of parish to say that wherever your church is, is your parish. You, God has placed you in that community to affect that community. So, it, it, what the, And this is why he talks about the parish is a dare to your faith. It's like, why is it a dare? Because it's saying, how are you affecting that local community? Uh, it calls us to the purpose of the church, to living out God's dream. See how we're connecting back with dare to dream and the other things, and caring for the place that we are called. It's, a, it's quite a challenging book. <laughs> there were bits of it I, I wanted to throw it across the room, so be aware if you, do, <laughs> if you do read it. It doesn't come from our normal perspective, but it's very challenging. Um, he challenges what he calls uh, the myth of the individual and living above place. What does that mean? Well, he's talking about uh, how the world has got into a place where everything is based around the individual, which is an aberration of how people have been for centuries, thousands of years, where everybody's been based in family and community. Suddenly it's all about the individual and about that individual's fulfilment. Even marriage is about what you can get out of it. And when you're no longer getting anything out of that marriage, it's time to move on. You know, people even get married saying to one another, when we're no longer getting anything out of this, that'll be the time we split up and go on to the next one. Okay, so that's, that's the myth of the individual, that everything is focused around one, that, that person. You see it in the church, what do I get out of church? What's in this church for me? What will I get out of going to church on a Sunday morning? And you might think, what I'm saying is just, well, yeah. But actually, that's not how God thinks. There's got to be a shift in our thinking where we begin to realize we're a people. And it's tough being a people because it's people reveal the thoughts in us. You know? Um, living above place is the idea of living, um, you live in a community, but you don't take part in any way in that community. Yeah, maybe you're always on Facebook or on um, games like Fortnite, which connect with people from all over the place. And there is a sense of which that's, that's a community in itself, but it's not the community that brings peace to people. If you're only involved in online communities, there's... There are several studies beginning to see that that is part of the roots of anxiety. 
Uh, it's odd because you think all those connections, and it, I'm not saying that those things are bad full stop, but if you're only living in those places, and you're, uh, maybe, you, maybe you have a community at work as well, and you, and you commute, but you don't know anyone that lives around you, and you're not involved in the, in the community of your church. You know, you see them on a Sunday and wave, and you smile, and you're friendly to one another, but you're not really involved with one another. That's living above place. Okay, and Paul Sparks is very strong in that God has li- called us to be living amongst people. I mean, he, his book is about how they... He was, he was the leader of um, a huge uh, American church in New York. I think it's New York. It was very successful. Lots of people came to it from all over the place. It was a big, growing church. And uh, he's very honest in the book. When he told people we start to need changing the community around us, the church shrunk because people didn't want that. They wanted good teaching. They wanted good worship. They weren't interested in serving the community. And if we're honest, that's one of the things that makes it more difficult to be part of this church because we talk about this stuff. It's easier to be in a church where all you have to do is turn up to worship and maybe help on a couple of teams. And this church constantly bangs on about living Jesus every day of the week. <laughs> 24-7, as the kids' work was called. And then there's this Daryl Gouda's quote, seeing God active in the, community, in the neighborhood with each person perceiving their own involvement in God's purpose to restore and heal creation. I'll leave that one with you because we're running out of time. But what, what's coming through missional imagination is it's not just preaching. But notice it's not just preaching. It is preaching. Christ died for my sins on the cross. But it's living that. It's living out what it's like to be totally accepted by God. Um, here's another quote from a theologian, David Bosch. Displaying to humanity a glimmer of God's imminent reign, a kingdom of reconciliation, peace and new life. That's what he sees Christians doing. I'll read it again because it's a lot of words in it. Displaying to humanity a glimmer of God's imminent reign, a kingdom of reconciliation, peace and new life. Here's another quote. You might recognize this one. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. That's missional imagination. Well, the second bit is. The first bit is prophetic imagination. It's seeing God active. So, a couple of questions. We're nearly at the end, Claire. Uh, going back to Dare to Dream, when we're gonna, we will actually focus on this a lot more in the second session that I do, and you'll be involved a lot more in thinking about this. So, this is really just to throw it out there at this point. How does Dare to Dream inspire, enable, encourage people to think? Or maybe you think it doesn't. We'll be looking at that a bit later. Does it work? I did, as part of my MA, uh, a research project on this. Some of you might have been involved in it. And uh, we're going to look at some of that, and you're going to have a go at a bit of what we did as well. 
because uh, it's, it's a good discussion simulator, but then stimulator. But then uh, we'll also uh, look at what the results were that came back in from asking those questions. So, Kingdom Face background. I mentioned this earlier is an attractional church preaching the gospel. If you go back to the 1990s, um, well, I mean, Kingdom Face background originally wasn't an attractional church. Its actual original um, mission was under Pastor Colin from the 70s, and his main role in, in this nation is, was, was really saying, was being part of bringing the church alive in the spirit, of learning to believe and trust in God again, rather than it just being dead religion, if you like. So that, that's, its, that's its origins. And then in the 1980s, uh, the Roffey Bible College began, and people used to gather there. And so by the beginning of the 1990s, in 1992... Uh, a congregation was started in Horsham. That was the first congregation. Although people had met all over the place, sort of in the name, a kingdom faith. And from that beginning, uh, at that time, it took on board, really, what was the norm for a charismatic church, which was to be attractional. It was to be the best possible service that you could have so that people would come on a Sunday. Uh, and so that was the inheritance of like congregational style in kingdom faith and you can see how God has taken us through a huge change over time here in Yorkshire and here and down in Taunton very definitely in London but also in Horsham and the, the, the other congregations that are around Horsham now um, that that is not just the focus it's not that that's bad you do want to have a good church you do want to have something that people enjoy coming to and meet with God and you do want it to be like if people come they want to come back uh, if you work on the host team, you know that that's a very strong part of our passion to make it uh, healthy. But how has our communal... I'm not going to answer this question right now. How has our communal imagination changed? Has it changed from just getting people in the building on a Sunday? I think it has. Maybe you don't. In which case, if you don't, that's really good that you're here because hopefully you're beginning to catch... What I see, how God is, is God is doing through us. Yeah, so I'm not going to expand on that anymore because we will be doing that later and we will, we will stop there and come back to this later. We have these questions later, but you're not getting them now. <laughs> these questions, not now. <laughs> Enjoy your coffee break. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources by Kingdom Faith and for our other audio and video podcasts, please visit kingdomfaith.com forward slash Yorkshire.